0: It's a short life. Grab every opportunity that's available to you. Don't, don't put things on. Get on with it.
1: From Hamster Wheel Publishing, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nickel. Today's guest is the global high priest of Ventry Business, John Sheridan. John is one of the profession's true trailblazers and his journey stretches back to a wartime education during the Blitz with his early clinical experience back in the halcyon Harriet era of veterinary practice. He stood at ground zero for veterinary corporatization in the UK when he set up veterinary practice initiatives back in 1998. And he still reaches into the future and remains on the cutting edge of both thought leadership and content production, publishing his weekly blog and also the veterinary business video show which is currently approaching episode 200. Now did I mention that in addition to getting his veterinary degree from the RVC, John was president of both the British Small Animal Veterinary Association and the Veterinary Practice Management Association in the UK. He holds a Diploma in Practice Management, the Certificate of Veterinary Practice Management, and just because he's showing off the Certificate in Veterinary Practice Administration. John jointly authored the Business of Ventry Practice book and recently received the Pioneer Professional Member Award from Vet Partners, the only non US recipient of this award to date, and possibly, to my knowledge, the only recipient ever of this award. So if you're starting to feel a little bit like a sad underachiever, then trust me, you're not the only one in the room. I almost daren't go on to his roll call for speaking credits, which are insanely long and would take an episode in themselves to list suffice to say john knows his stuff and people myself included over the past four decades have been listening intently john is one of my veterinary heroes and has had a massive influence on my career so it was a pleasure to have him on as a guest at blunt dissection hopefully i didn't come across as too much of a fanboy Anyway, in the episode he gives a masterclass in his forever charming way on how to take risks, network like a pro, push through fear, learn from other people and how to start up a veterinary hospital, plus why no one but no one wants to be the average client. Plus he practically gives away the blueprint for what the veterinary practice of tomorrow will look like. If that is not a valuable way to spend an hour of your time, I really don't know what is. So, I invite you to sit back and enjoy episode 6 of Blunt Dissection with none other than John Sheridan. Welcome to this next edition of Blunt Dissection. I am sitting in, I would describe it as idyllic this location. Um, I've got some extremely, extremely colourful, are they lupins, John? Is lupins, that what they are? yes. They're, I'm, I'm reminded of a Monty Python. <laughs> <sketch>. <laughs> um, a, an absolute riot of lupins. I don't know if lupins can be a riot. They're probably more orderly than that, but a gorgeous array of, of pink and purple lupins and a beautiful, uh, I would say classic um, English country garden. And what is a beautiful, um, late spring, possibly early summer day maybe this is the whole of the English summer we're getting in the, in the last two days and I'm in West Sussex again um, I seem to be spending quite a lot of time here recently um, but that's that's not a hardship because it's such a lovely, lovely place I am joined and I am very, very excited to bring to you today um, John Sheridan Now, I'm excited for two reasons one, because uh, I can't think of anybody who's more Encyclopedic and aware of everything that's just been happening in the veterinary profession over the last um, the last sort of three or four decades, and really seen through a lot of the the changes that we're encountering and, 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 and ridden alongside it. But the other reason is is quite a more selfish reason, and that is um, John is one of my veterinary heroes. So it's a it's a great privilege to be here and to speak speak with you, John. Uh, so welcome
0: to the show. Thank you very much, Dave. I'm delighted to welcome you to my to my home, and looking forward very much to to a chat. So for so I
1: know you, and and we we've been friends for some time now. Um, but not everybody's in that privileged position. So I suppose the good start point would be maybe just can you give us a little background on your your journey? Um, you know where it all started. Let's maybe start with the question every vet gets asked, and that is, you know, did you always want to be a vet? And how did you get into this, this sort of, uh, this profession? And when was that?
0: Well, no, I didn't always want to be a vet. When I was at school, I uh, i I became more, I, I was clearly a sort of scientist. I mean, I was clearly not not a modern languagey sort of a person. I was sort of scient- was on the science side. And so biology was the thing that I found interesting. And looking back now, I mean, I'm convinced that whatever you do in life is very much determined by your teachers and by your family. And I just remember at school that my biology master, who was with me for, for, for a good many years, Sammy Cole, his name was, he... He got me really interested. And I, and I can remember one Founders Day, we spent weeks putting together a model of a, a plastic heart and pipes and circulatory system, and we had red ink and blue ink. And, we had you know, it was great. It was really exciting. So, so clearly I was going to be a biologist of some sort. And I can remember when I was in the sixth form, there were 25 of us or thereabouts, and we had a debate one day, and everybody... But everybody was decided they wanted to be a doctor. And I suppose, because I'm always a bit of a rebel at heart, I came to the conclusion that I was going to be different. And I just stood up and said, no, well, actually, I'm going to be a vet. And so that was when I was 16 or 17. Did you grow up in this area in West Sussex as well? No, I was, I was a London boy. We lived in South London. And so my, I was born in 1936. So my earliest memories were of, uh, of the war and the blitz and bombing you know we had two air raid shelters and um and i was thinking the other day you know as children i don't i don't ever recall being frightened i mean it was just the way it was you know every night of course people spent the night in the shelter but we we lived in uh, we lived in south london and then uh, dad was working in uh, in london throughout the war he had taken over from his father who um, who had established a, a theatrical lighting company in london and dad his dad died at an early age when i was the year i was born which was the year that Franklin Roosevelt had been uh, won his second election, so he was being inaugurated in the states. In uh, in the UK, Edward VIII was on the f- on the throne, uh, soon to uh, give up his throne for George VI. And presumably in Berlin or in the Black Forest somewhere, Hitler was planning war. So that was the sort of time. So so my early early memories was were of uh, of war. So but we did spend quite a lot of time in the country. And uh, so I had a very, in spite of the war, I had a very happy childhood. Did those experiences, as
1: as you were talking there, a question that popped in my head was, in our profession, people fear change. I mean, people fear change generally. But I think us vets tend to fear it a little bit more than others might do. And we're, we're seen as quite a conservative industry, which I think is attractive in some ways, like the banks like us for that reason, like we're very stable. But in terms of the environment in which we now operate, which seems to be changing a far more dramatic pace um, with technological advances, with changing ownership structures, with uh, changing uh, demographics and their expectations. Was the fact that you were born into What must have been the most turbulent recent period, although that was a very happy part of your childhood, it was quite a disturbing, disruptive and destructive period for Europe and the world generally. Did that shape you, have an impact on your resilience to change or your ability to adapt to change, do you think, over the rest of your career in a way that, you know, and I don't want to paint... The younger generation with a brush here, but you you do hear of like Simon Sinek mentioning the entitlement of the current, you know, the next generation that are coming through seem to be the most entitled generation for ever, and the expectation of well, I'm here, so I, I deserve it, versus perhaps from wartime, post-war time, depression times where well, there's nothing, so you have to make it. Is that has that been an influence or? could First of all, how much of an influence was that on what you did with your career? Because you've done some very interesting things that we will come on to and talk about. And have you ever reflected on the differences between your generation and the current generation of vets that are graduating?
0: Yes, I have. And and strange, I hadn't thought about it much before, but, but I don't think I've ever Really been appreh- too apprehensive about change. In fact, in some respects, I've always been looking to change. I've been looking to do the new thing. But I'm very conscious of the fact that my parents' generation had it much tougher than I had. You know, I mean, the, so we're talking about World War One, and uh, and for how many families, how many of the of the young men in the family went off to war and never came back, and so that had profound impact on. Uh, on the sisters, you know, the large families, my, my, my uh, father's family, you know, he was one of eight and my mum was one of uh, four or five. And uh, I felt very privileged. I was lucky. I went to Dulwich College, which which was a public school south of London. And uh, we used to go skiing after Christmas every year for a week before we went back to school. So looking back, you know, that was a, a very, Privileged life, so I, so I, I, I had it uh, easy and a great childhood, and I enjoyed my childhood, and I didn't, I didn't really want to leave school. But when I got to the vet, vet college, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that and didn't want to leave vet college <laughs> you know, in a, in a way. Uh, but then you move on to the next thing in life, and um, and I do think, and I, and I know, you know, I'm, I'm an old crotchety old man, I suppose, but but I do think looking at the younger generation now. For example, I I do honestly think that vets in practice, employees in practice have it cushy compared with some of the practices I've seen, not so much how it affected me as an individual. What would be the most dramatic differences between
1: uh, the world that you inhabited and the world that they are?
0: Well, I I graduated in 1960 and I was fortunate there was no difficulty in getting a job there were hundreds of jobs in the veterinary record and uh, i applied for some jobs and went to a number of interviews and uh, took my first job my first job was in uh, norfolk it was a a traditional mixed practice but it was just the boss and me Um, and there were lots of small traditional agricultural mixed practices at that time And so it was great in some ways because there was free accommodation provided, uh, and we got married, I graduated in March, started the job in uh, a week or two after I graduated, and then got married in June, so that my my wife and I, we moved into a practice house. Um, But then the routine was be- and it was the norm then. We did every other night on duty, full on duty. And I did two weekends out of three on duty. And this was mixed practice? Or this small? was a mixed practice. Uh, and uh, and, I, uh, and I didn't think anything of it because all of my compatriots at, at college were all in a, in a similar sort of situation. And so I was quite happy to be on duty. And, of course, there were some challenging things. And, I mean... You know, it does worry me now that I hear reports from the vet schools that they're not in the business of creating uh, practice-ready vets, which I just think is a, is appalling. I mean, I'm I'm well understand that when you come out of vet college, suddenly having been absorbing information for five or more years, suddenly you're in a position where, in, in theory, you're the expert and ready to answer all the questions. And that's when you start learning. And I can remember my first day seeing stuff that I'd never, ever heard of or seen before at vet school, and you and you, you bluff your way through it. <laughs> and you have a boss that you can ask questions for who is fairly tolerant, and you, and you learn and learn very fast. But I but I didn't but I don't think I felt sort of stressed about it at all. Mm. Uh, it was the norm and I can remember when we left college You know this fear of the Royal College and you're going to get struck off at the time uh, The the stories that went round was were that in farm animal practice You didn't need to worry too much about it in small animal practice The only thing you needed to worry about was 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 embarking on some love affair with a gorgeous client <laughs> There were no other sort of reasons why you might got struck off, right? Right. <laughs> um,
1: it's the big. It's the big fear, but statistically, it's highly unlikely for a new graduate to get struck off. This is one of the things I learned researching the book I just written, and it's it's everyone's huge fear forever. Like when you're going to graduate, you know. And and I, I recall when I graduated, people saying, "Oh, you know, just get through your first twelve months without getting struck off, and you'll be fine." But statistically. You're much the the most likely year of post graduation. This was from New South Wales Board of Veterinary Medicine statistics. Um, I, I think it was about eight years post graduation was the most common time where people actually, and they don't get sued because that's that's highly unusual. It's a word we use and label, but they have a complaint of some kind that winds up as a disciplinary process through. Whatever licensing board is there, it's not usually a legal matter outside of the profession. Um, and so it was just interesting that that's that's through the years what we're all terrified of, yes. but it's highly highly unlikely to happen. Um, although different reasons now, because one of the things wasn't eloping with a, a gorgeous client or something.
0: No, I, you know, I've from that I, I I learned particularly with when I became self-employed when I. The relationship that I had then with the registrar, Alistair Porter, at the time, was a very because I had complaints about me not not from clients, but they were always usually from other vets because of advertising or or practice plates being too large and those sorts of things. And uh, I, I had long lots of long, gentlemanly, courteous correspondence with the with the registrar at the time. Which I think was no 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 bad thing. I mean, I think it uh, it helped me develop as a member of this great profession of ours. That I'm proud to have been a member of this profession for a good many years now. You're alluding to in those conversations
1: with um, with the college, and that's something that today we have to worry a lot less about in terms of, you know. Certainly, when I first entered a veterinary practice when I was 13 and was asking questions that weren't always medically oriented um and more about the marketing side of things even then asking about okay how, like how do you get clients and things like that and just getting blank looks back from the principal saying well you know that it was a brass plaque on the door and a, an advert in the yellow pages that was fairly low-key that was that was it otherwise you would get a you, know, you weren't allowed to advertise or compete with with fellow practices which has changed but surely it's conversations like that like you were having and one of my previous guests Garrett Turley seemed to be another another from Sussex that seemed to be having conversations fairly regularly with the the Royal College over marketing practices that surely shaped it for the next generation and and I suppose me and my generation to come along and have it have it easy in terms of marketing in some ways so you you know, you've described yourself to me as before as a bit of a rebel and, and that's inside of John Sheridan. I'd love to hear a little bit more about and explore because you clearly have a zest for entrepreneurial activities. Um, and maybe a a good place to go in our conversation now, if we can change gear a little bit would be what's fascinating, what people um, may not know is that um, I'm sat in the room with pretty much the, the the germination point for corporate practice within the UK, certainly. Um, now, John, you may correct me if that's inaccurate, and and put me right. That's fine. But talk me through your journey from you know being a vet into practice ownership, and then you then decided to set up AnyCare Care and and start building the first, or certainly one of the first group practices that was truly a a corporate as a sort of gateway into what we now see in the the corporate market with 30% corporatization back then what you were doing must have been seriously got some eyebrows raising and people talking but talk me through the the you know the thought
0: processes for you in in going on that journey and making that transition okay well i I spent just eighteen months in in a in a, in a mixed pra- in the mixed practice, and then I came to the conclusion that that was all right for in in your twenties, but I couldn't see myself grovelling around, farrowing sows sows in the middle of a field miles from anywhere, in my thirties and forties. So I switched to small animal practice and and went to a practice in uh, in Surrey for three years with a view to partnership, but but it quickly became clear that it was never going to happen. Uh, And and this was in the sort of middle late sixties, and um, veterinary hospitals were just beginning to happen. And I was aware of the great reputation of Jeff and Christine Startup, who who uh, were opening a practice, a hospital practice in Worthing. And I remember phoning up uh, Doctor Startup as I knew him then. That's a. Great name! (laughs) You're going to set up a corporate business. That's that's a fantastic name. And I and I introduced myself, and this was out totally out of the blue. And I said that I fundamentally, I I I was aiming to have a veterinary hospital one of these days. Would it be okay if I came and talked to him about veterinary hospitals? And he was the most wonderful man. He said instantly he'd be delighted to talk to me, and invited my wife and I to uh, to Worthing us on a, on a Sunday we went over there for lunch on a Sunday and we talked and talked and talked and talked and I left there sort of eight o'clock that evening with a job I mean I hadn't I hadn't gone there with there wasn't <laughs> the purpose of the exercise at all and the job was to run a branch surgery he he had a he and Christine had a hospital in Worthing it was a new new hospital uh, but they wanted somebody to run the branch, which is Southwick, which was just outside Brighton. So I I did and I became a partner after about a year, I think, and um, and I became a partner. I don't I don't remember any sort of great debate or discussion about values or, or shared vision at all. It was just the sort of thing that you did. You were invited to become a partner and you said, yes, please. And you paid over your money and became a partner. And. Um, and at that time, so I worked there as a as a partner. And uh, at that time, the BVA arranged a week's course on business management at the Henley School of Management. Nice. And I and I have I can't remember how I got onto this, but I clearly I had applied, and Jeff Startup uh, uh, agreed that I should go. And I spent a week there. And so for a week, we and it was a it was a residential. So for a week, I was exposed to all of these people who knew nothing about veterinary practice, but were knew all about financial management and marketing and production and uh, personnel management and all of that stuff. And I, and I really got into that and was excited about it, came back to my branch. It was at the time that Beeching was reorganising British Rail and cutting a lot of... So there was the, the Beeching plan. And I came back and quietly produced a business plan... For my end of our practice. So I was running a branch practice in Southwick just outside Brighton and I could I had this vision for Brighton of uh, of a central hospital and branches feeding into the hospital all of that sort of stuff and I and I put together a written business plan and, uh, and At that time there were we had two other partners who joined the practice and I presented my plan to my to my partners at the time everybody was madly busy this is the trouble in veterinary practice partners have little time to talk to each other about anything and regrettably my plan was never really debated or discussed and I got increasingly sort of cross about it and to cut a long story short I uh, I felt angry and I uh, and I resigned my partnership and uh, it was it was strange because at the time I was getting sort of lots of tummy aches And, uh, you know, was I getting an ulcer? I have no idea anyway. Anyway, from the from the day I offered my resignation, I never had another tummy ache from there on. Uh, But I had no idea what I was going to do. But then and and a lot happened. I had to give six months notice. And at the end of the six months, I bought out my end of the practice. So at the end of so this was in 1971. So I now was the owner of a single-handed small animal practice. So I you, was. You, um, you bought the branch surgery. That I bought you the branch know, surgery. Yeah, right, and um, I was ambitious uh, in the sense that I had a, I had a vision of, of of where I wanted to go. I didn't want to become. The sole principle of a large organisation, I'd, because I'd seen a lot of practices, particularly in Norfolk at the time, there were very large, well-known practices with the big boss, with lots of branches. And the problem is that when the boss uh, gets old, you get sort of a bit of a, rebe- a rebellion from the branches, and, and these practices broke up. So I didn't want that to happen I didn't really want partners because i had had enough of a partnership for the time being. But I could see that there was potential in Brighton for new practices. And I found some premises, uh, rented the premises, set them up uh, as a veterinary practice, put an ad in the veterinary record. And the ad simply said, I'm looking for a colleague to open a new branch. Salary will be zero, but you will have a list of people. Uh, you will employ your own staff, we will share nights and weekends, uh, I will help you run the business, and at the time I had some fairly basic management ideas about bookkeeping and so on, and, uh, and I remember it as clear as anything, uh, uh, Rex Chandler, who was a Cambridge graduate, uh, my age, came and saw me, and we hit it off straight away, he started with a, a nil salary, but instantly he had a few clients and we shared nights and weekends and it and it was an arrangement which worked extremely well. And so then I, I bought a branch practice from somebody who had uh, who, who wanted to sell a branch in Brighton and they then opened up a couple of uh, uh, new practices. And, and I discovered that what I was really doing was a, some sort of a franchise. I didn't i didn't understand i didn't at the time know anything about franchising but in return for um i provided management support for which i received a payment which was which was linked in some way to practice turnover and it was a very good arrangement in the early days i joined the british franchise association and got involved with people like pronto print and kentucky fried chicken and talked to all of those people and, and learned a bit and then problems arose and the problems arose because if I was Kentucky Fried Chicken and you wanted to be a Kentucky Fried Chicken franchisee, you would pay me a good deal of money. Right, right. Uh, and I and I would tell you exactly how to fry chicken and the, what the menu should be. And so you would follow my rules to the letter because if you didn't, the arrangement would break down and you would go out and the next person would come in. Now, of course, that wasn't the case in vets. I had no control above... Uh, over the way they ran their business, I found it very difficult. We couldn't even agree things like should we all use the same vaccine, or the same fees, or the same colour scheme, or anything like that. Because vets are really nice entrepreneurial people, but they're they're a cussed lot of people. They like to do their own thing, independent minded, uh, which is which is our strength. But then that creates problems. So I couldn't I couldn't couldn't make it work. And I and I and I. I didn't want to break down the friendship because I had really good friends and colleagues with my franchisees. And so I I, uh, said, well, we'll change the the model now. You can continue to use the name if you want to use the name and pay a fee. Um, But it would be more of a voluntary organization because by then I'd got really interested in in the business side of practice, there were only two other people uh, that I could think of, and they were uh, Dixon Gunn and John Gripper. As far as I we're looking back, they were the only people offering management support and advice. And so I decided that that's what I do. I had a little bit of knowledge from Henley. I went over to the states. I went to Samaha meetings and V H M A meetings over there. Met various people. I used to go over to the states, learn what I could learn, come back over here. And pretend it was knowledge that I'd had for years and promoted it and talked about it and wrote about it and <laughs> and gradually and and I sp- and I spoke at meetings and gradually people would ask me for advice and I'd go to a practice and and write a report and so on so gradually 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 I built up a management consulting service and had you exited the practices completely at that
1: point what what had happened you know, did you sell them to your existing
0: partner slash franchisees yeah. or how did that bit wind up? Well, the plan, <laughs> the plan went wrong with it because I, this was by now we're, we're talking about 1984 5. And I had opened a new, a brand new branch in just outside Worthing, the other side of the river, which created some problems with with the vets in the other side of the river who thought... Uh, who, 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 who fundamentally said to me, you know, we're all tied up here. We've got enough vets in the area. We don't, if we have any more vets, it's going to dilute the market. And I, and I argued strongly that if I was wrong, I'd be the one that suffered. They wouldn't suffer at all. Anyway, I set up this branch and found a franchisee, but within a week, I knew that she was the wrong person. So quickly we parted company. But it meant then that I had to go back to being a vet. All over again, starting from scratch, a one-man band as a franchisee at the same time as I was a franchisor and trying yeah. to run a management consultancy. So you got
1: sucked back in. I so got keep sucked back in,
0: and for a year I was really, uh, yeah, whizzing. Re- I mean, really working very hard until. Uh, so it it it, it probably def- deferred things for a year or eighteen months. Right, and and what happened next after that? Well, the next thing that happened was that. I was running now a a full, so I'd stopped being a vet. In 1985, 86, I stopped being a vet. And I was a full time management consultant. And I had a a stand at BSAVA Congress every year. uh, And I had built up, uh, I hope, a reasonably good reputation and was fairly well known. I used to go to the States a lot to learn what I could learn. I went to the VMI the the institute that purdue university the joint institute with uh aha there were four modules and i think there's still four modules i went to, so i'd used to go over to the states on a thursday go to purdue work with the group on friday saturday sunday fly back sunday night and start work on monday morning so i did i think four or five modules yep. and and that was a huge education for me because i met a whole lot of people that I would never otherwise have met, learned a great deal and uh, and was really a full-time sort of management consultant. But the next thing that happened was that it was clear, and by then I was doing quite a lot of practice valuations and I was valuing practices and I'd get the practice accounts and I could see that there were a lot of Partnerships when it was john smith and and mrs Smith who were the who were the partners, John Smith was the vet, and mrs smith wasn 't the vet. This was in the um, late eighties early nineties it was clear then that there were already practices who were in in effect part owned by non vets so when I used to go to the states and I could see what was happening with corporate practice in the states uh, met up with with two people, with Peter Beaumont in the States, who was a, who was a British vet, uh, and with a, with a couple of other people. And we agreed that we would put together a business plan for a corporate practice in, in the UK. Uh, although at the time it's strictly speaking wasn't wouldn't have been allowed by the Royal College we put together a a business plan which I thought was a pretty good business plan it was about a centimetre thick I remember and and it was becoming clearer and clearer so by now I suppose we were in up to the sort of 94 95 it was becoming clear that the Royal College were less sure about their position I mean I don't think there was any sort of dramatic decision-making it just it just happened slowly but surely the Royal College started to recognize that other people could own a veterinary practice as long as nothing interfered with the ethical relationship between a a vet and a client and the Royal College that was the ethical relationship which had to be maintained and so we 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 did a deal with uh, with a large firm of international accountants who agreed to to create a, bi- a better business plan, the business plan that we would need to raise money at no charge But in return to a fairly substantial sum when we raise the money. And so I can remember one Winter spending most of a lot great deal of time in City of London Going around talking to all sorts of people and I was t- you know a total amateur at this, this is an absolute total new world to me uh, but the other members of the team were more au fait with that world than I was Looking back, we spent a great deal of time trying to raise the money. And we did raise the money, but we didn't raise as much money. I mean, I can't remember the numbers, but I think we were looking for eight 8 million and we around 3.5 million or some, something, those those sorts of numbers. And we started buying practices. And looking back, why did it go wrong? It went wrong, I think, because we spent more time on raising the money and not enough time on saying... So what do you do when you suddenly discover that you own four or five practices around the country? What practically do you do? How do you manage practice from afar? Those sorts of issues. Um, But in 1996-7, we started buying practices and we bought, I think, a total of 36 or 37 practice units. I switched from being a self-employed chap. I stopped being a vet. I gave up my consultancy. I became an employee of the company of of, um, Veterinary Practice Initiatives uh, until I retired as a, a, yes, I retired as as an executive director. I was chief veterinary officer for the company in 2003, but remained on the board until 2005. So I was a non-executive director then for a couple of years. And And VPI went wrong. And it went wrong for a number of reasons looking back. But I think fundamentally our problem was we ran out of cash. You know, I'd already been talking about businesses failing because they ran out of cash more than because they were unprofitable. And that's exactly what happened with us. And, you know, it's history now, but VPI was taken over by CVS. And uh, the practices that we had then, are, as far as I'm aware, very successful members of uh, the CVS uh,
1: empire. So much to go into. Fascinating to sort of hear that. Um, I was actually was speaking about money. One of my first questions was: Was access to money? I mean, I'm talking when you first bought into the partnership. Did you have to approach a bank at that point, or were you, was it? A, a, you know, what, what what did the deal look like in in, in that time period? to buy into a
0: practice to buy into the practice yeah. back in yeah. 19 in the sixth, in late the 60s. 60s yeah and we had gone to see a practice to buy knowing nothing about the finances of the practice knowing nothing about the value of the practice or anything like that um but i remember going to see this practice and this was a, a wonderful man I and mean, he i'm sure he's dead many years ago but he'd had cancer of the throat and he'd had his uh, his uh, larynx removed and so he spoke with difficulty you know through a laryngeal stoma i suppose yeah. um but the standard of practice in those days in this this practice which was a well-known practice uh, cat spays were taken in spayed today had a had an abdominal bandage and hospitalized for a week and then the bandage was taken off and they went home a week later Looking back at his dispensary, there was nothing in his dispensary uh, except there were different color aspirins and he had brown little brown heart and tonic tablets and you know the standard of medicine was just was just awful and um and was was the body bandage on there because there were no ligatures applied like uh, you know you hear of the straight <laughs> the straight answer is i, I don 't know it 's just I have this sort of vague memory <laughs> of and the, and because of ill health, and he didn't drive this vet, and if you phoned him up and wanted a house call, he would ask you which was the best bus to get and how far he'd had to walk from <laughs> there. You know, it was that sort of a... Not quite. So, so it, it, it opened my eyes to the state of this particular practice. And in fact, there were lots... At that time, there were lots and lots of practices like that. I know because I you know, I saw a lot when I started doing providing a consultancy service. <laughs> at the startups i uh yes i don't i don't remember a great deal of debate um i i it was partly financed by bank of dad and partly financed by bank loans the bank was very happy to provide the loan i don't ever remember putting together a business plan uh it was just uh a word i'm sure that i'm sure the loan was secured uh, perhaps my, by my dad a reputation of the of my uh, senior partners, and that was enough to raise them. So that so that the money wasn't an issue, and I and I was ha- and I was able. I, I mean, I can't remember what I was owning then, but I was able to pay back the loan without any great difficulty. From that journey through your formation
1: of the corporate model, and just your journey through life as a veterinarian, what what are the top sort of maybe two or three lessons that you've taken away? You think. If I, if I do it again, I do it this way. Or perhaps
0: we really did that bit well. That would still stand up today.
1: Does anything jump out to
0: you when I ask that question? I, I believe in practice. I'm a firm believer in practice. How well, how well you do in a career in veterinary practice as a veterinarian, as a professional, depends very much on, on your first boss. My first boss was, he had no business sense at all. He was a wonderful vet in the old-fashioned sense. The way he related to his clients, communicated with his clients, his reputation for honesty, for reliability, if he said he was going to do something, he did it, Um, was just wonderful. And the way he allowed me to do stuff, I mean, in my first week, I went to see a a heifer that was calving... I knew I wasn't going to be able to carve this uh, this heifer. I could feel three, three feet. I told the farmer that we would have to do a Caesar and the farmer said, absolutely, that's fine. I phoned up my boss and said, uh, boss, we're going to have to do a Caesar. Uh, what time shall I tell the farmer that you'll be along? Oh, golly, he said, he was off to Fakenham races that day, so I better go home and boil the stuff up and get on and do it. So I did that, I boiled all the stuff up in a fish kettle that we used to do to boil the instruments, went back to this uh, uh, heifer, did a Caesar, delivered a dead calf, was it a schistosome? It was where the abdominal wall doesn't uh, didn't fuse, so the calf was dead. Um, the heifer was fine. Stitched out. I went back to see this heifer every day until for ten days until I took the stitches out. I don't think any heifer had such care in terms of, <laughs> of up. It, to go back every day. So from a financial point of view, it must have been a total disaster from the practice's point of view. But it did. It taught me so much about well, about all sorts of things. So my boss was like that. He would allow me to do tons and learn. And there were lots of failures and some successes, and but but golly, you you learn. So, that, so that's that. Then the other bit of the, your question you asked about what I do now is that I would, if I was a young vet now, I would definitely look for a career in practice. Probably not as a clinician. You know, if you you invited me into your... If you had a practice and you invited me to do evening surgery, I'd be all right with the customers, the clients, be all right handing the animals. I'd be totally lost in the pharmacy, totally lost with diagnostics. Um, So the lesson I've learned is that whatever your ambition, whatever your aspirations in life are, whether it's to do with animal welfare or a good working uh, environment... Or work-life balance, or better medicine, or develop a specialty as skins or orthopedics, or or you wanted time off to uh, play golf three days a week. Whatever it is, every every one of those depends on owning or managing a an efficient, effective, economical business, which has to make a healthy profit. And I didn't, I wasn't aware of the imperative for profit until too late in my career. So that's an interesting
1: direction to take the conversation. And I I couldn't agree more with you. I mentioned earlier fear of change and, and fear in general. It seems to be something that well, I, was, I was speaking at a, a conference this weekend. And on the Sunday, there was a panel where I was invited to sit. And the the topic was, you know, corporate versus independent practice, you know, should we fear this? Why there, Why is everybody so scared? And one of the questions came back from the floor was, well, look, practices are too expensive to buy into now. We can't get a foot in a ladder. Um, if if the corporates come in and they buy three practices in a town, I don't have any options. And I was I was sort of curious about that. I challenged that back a little bit because corporates don't want every practice in the UK or America or Australia. They only want a certain si- above a certain size and above a certain revenue. And that's what makes sense for them to work. And certainly in the US, you know, they, they don't want one or two vet practices. They want four or five doctor hospitals that are run effectively that can just add growth to them and add profit right away. Um, and there's a plethora of one or two vet practices that are not very well run, that still have bosses who don't really appreciate the need to deliver profit and 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 are perhaps sitting on a practice thinking they're going to get a big payday and are possibly going to get a big shock when that payday doesn't come along. So my question for you is, given that as a backdrop, what would your advice to a young vet who was starting out their career um, be in terms of getting into ownership? What's what direction, what things should they be doing? Um, how can they fund it? what are the avenues into that career path? How do they go about it?
0: Well when I was consulting, I always took the view that if you did your homework there were the, the chances are there was always room for a new vet in, a, in, in an area and the very best place to set up would be bang next door to a super duper hospital because super duper hospitals att- attract uh, the people who are looking for super duper hospitals, but there will always be people who want to be who, who want to seek professional advice from a named individual or a couple of named individuals, where it's a much more personal thing. And and the issue I think really is that traditionally veterinary practices have worked on the basis that we have to be all things to all men. You know, we have to on the one hand provide a service. An expensive very special service to a people for people who are looking for for high-priced very special stuff but we also have to look after the interests of the people who are very cost-conscious uh, who are looking for the services offered by a sort of a high-volume low-price service and and that you end up with this with this graph and so if you were to ask the people who worked in the practice, who we got to look after in this town, they would all say we want to be looking after all the people all the time. And so, if you asked a practice, where was their niche in, in this, on this graph, they would say, well, somewhere in the middle. We like to provide a, 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 a good standard of service at a at a realistic, uh, fair price, whatever that is to uh, to a, to a fair number of people and the trouble is the clients now don't want to be average who wants to be average i i either want to be the client who i can afford it and i'm looking for the best but by george i'm i, I demand the best and happy to pay for it or i'm very cost conscious so money is an issue for me but i still want the best possible service, and I want all the reliability and honesty and all those other attributes. and so I think increasingly it's a question of, of of selecting, and I'm not a marketing man, but isn't this what marketing people say? You've got to pick a niche, you've got to you've got to find your little bit. You asked me if I would be or I had assumed you'd ask me, did I want to be a vet again? Yes, I would want to be a vet again. I would want to be a practice owner. I doubt I don't think I want to be a clinician again because I because i've I've sort of done that but i would i would pick a niche and um and it might even be you know i'm only concerned with people who own cavalier king charles spaniels that have congestive heart failure i mean it might be a tiny little niche like that although i must say now i'm even more excited about the future of my profession in practice because i went to i was fortunate i went to las vegas in uh, february and the, at a meeting of vet partners, and the whole debate for two days was all about the Internet of Things and about telemedicine and IT and all of that sort of stuff. And coming back, I thought to myself, if I was, if I now was, wanted to. Be involved in starting a practice all over again i would look at it completely from a client's point of view in a way maureen and i we've we've had irish setters all our lives always had two irish setters and when one dies we'd always get two new puppies and we lost our last irish setter about three or four years ago so we now have a rescue dog so i so i in a way i'm in a situation i now i'm not a vet i have to pay for vet, or i have to ensure for best she's the love of our life Apart from our children and grandchildren, um, so if I was a if I was a pet owner now looking for a vet in an ideal world, I asked myself what I would what would I be looking for, and I have this vision I could exp- I could tell you what it is that i 'd be looking for so if I was a young vet that 's what I'd try and provide, and that would be very different from Almost any veterinary practice that I that I that I see now. So I think the future of it, the independent sector is great, but the picture of what the model would look like is going to be very different from what it is now, and that raises a whole lot of questions about about regulatory questions, all the stuff that the Royal College is on about. Um, but but the future of what actually happens over the next twenty or thirty years won't be determined by the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. It will be determined by the marketplace, by the entrepreneurs, by the providers of the services demanded by the customers. So what are the big questions then? Are any of them on the tip of your tongue? If I was a pet owner, I mean... the questions sort of come later, really, and, and, I, and I have to say I'm a little bit disappointed because I I'm a member of this of SPIV, yes, the, the SPIV discussion group, and when the when the Royal College announced that they were conducting this um, survey, and I'm absolutely sure that it was the right thing to do, they had to they had to do this because they have to they have to they have to know what the profession is thinking about, and I do get the impression from talking to vets and monitoring those discussion groups that it's all a bit negative you know we're we're very defensive you re- as a as a profession as a profession we we're, we're we're conservative we right. don't want the change right. and we so defend to the hilt you know and this it fits, still happens cool. now with veterinary nurses yeah doesn't it you know i mean I, I i can recall when when we when when i was climbing the presidential ladder at BSAVA great debate about uh, about Runners, as they were then registered animal nursing auxiliaries and the debate about nurses and what could nurses do and i think the frustration caused by some uh, in the minds of many nurses is because vets want to hang on to what it is they're doing you know no, nobody can do an intravenous take blood as quickly and as efficiently as i can there's the trap of um we we Quality think shit. we think we that's right we think we're special we're good at everything as right, right in a way I mean I I'm aware now that it's difficult for vets to find qualified nurses because qualified nurses come into the profession wildly enthusiastic and then they seem to go off and have babies and families and so on and don't come back into the profession and I I mean not that I know I'm an old I'm an old man of the wrong of the wrong gender but I, but I think the frustration is that they haven't their their skills and expertise aren't used by their employers and in a way so that's our fault it's the fault of of my profession and so i'm and I, i'm i'm anxious too that um uh, my colleagues in the profession in practice are very defensive about the changes that i think are coming and i think we'll miss out because i think a corporate if i as an individual have a and beginning to have a vision of a veterinary practice in five or ten years' time, which is uses much more high IT and high tech and all of that sort of stuff. Um, if I'm thinking about that, if I, you can bet your bottom dollar that the corporates are thinking that way too, or at least some of the corporates, or some groups within the corporates are thinking that way. And if they're thinking that way, they could do it quicker and faster than. I could as a, as an individual. So I think the str- the strengths of the independent practices are that they can make decisions quickly. They can raise money quickly. They can go to the bank. They can put put together a business plan quickly. They don't have to persuade an awful lot of people. They can just start doing it. How does an
1: independent practice? You know, I can agree with you. the The cost of the projects that are in the pipeline. Let me let me backtrack. I think there's a danger that vets become obsolete to a certain extent. And I'm just going to throw this theory at you and, and see what bounces off. But, and, and when I say obsolete, I mean, I actually, I actually mean invisible because there's a conversation happening outside of veterinary practices regarding animal health care. And we have a diminishing volume in that conversation principally because we are still not embracing the the technologies that we really can't even describe as new technologies now but technologies of communication in ways that allow us to communicate more frequently with pet owners at less expense and and continue to have impact you know once upon a time for a pet owner to get information they would come in a veterinary hospital Uh, Then they would have found a pet magazine, perhaps. You know, fast forward, evolution of internet. Now there's websites galore and there's social media. And just the ability to connect to whatever interest you have. You can now find somebody who's willing to feed you some form of news. And and as we know, the internet's full of really good quality news. that's completely, you know, uh, trustworthy. But what what we do know is that it doesn't matter whether it's trustworthy or not people are listening and consuming that news and believing it to be fact. And where you and I had to go to veterinary college for five years to become qualified, a piece of advice on the internet simply needs three people to click the like button and it becomes a qualified source, uh, you know, with, with value that changes behavior. And we're, you know, my concern is we are still not getting into that part of the conversation. So when you start having conversations with practice owners about big data and how to generate you know what data is useful to us and how we generate that data and then how we process that and how we then influence the medical decisions and actually the conversations and the alerts the way we get practice owners to interact with us it's just a blank look back that you get you know that's exciting to some but just it's it's too big a change from will people walk in my exam room and i fix their pet this reactive medicine that we've practiced it's it's too big too big a leap, and actually the expense involved in in you know we we've built apps like apps apps are expensive things to to do right you can do it cheaply and and they're not brilliant, but the investment required to fund the development of a you know a, a device that measures the amount that an animal will move around every day or you know the accelerometers that are in our phones to to shrink those down to a size where they're actually not unwieldy horrible things that chew up enormous amounts of battery life that's an expensive undertaking and i you know i think corporates are the only ones that are likely to have the, the pockets for that and farm farm like pharma i think is likely to develop that and then bring it to practices rather than groups of practices but how does in your opinion how does the the independent practice or, or indeed the the corporate practice is I'm not, I'm not i'm really not here to to bash corporate practice uh, or to encourage you to do that you know it should be a daft thing um but how how do we best harness these and bring these into practice in a meaningful way that that are of benefit to everybody
0: i think one one of the people that i spoke to at this conference in the states was telling me about lameness in horses now it's a long time since I saw a horse, but he was telling me because I can remember at college and afterwards, you you go and you watch a, you trot a horse up because it was lame, and then there would be a great debate: how do you decide which limb and whereabouts on which limb it was? And he was telling me now about about the high tech equipment. So you put some you put some little sensor on the horse's head, and some little sensor on two of its limbs. And I, where or how I, I have no idea. And you have a wireless receiver and you trot the horse up and down for 10 minutes and you get a printout from this receiver which will tell you exactly how much weight is being borne by each limb in turn and it'll tell so in effect it tells you which limb the the horse is lame on and even which to some maybe which even which part of which limb so there you don't need a vet to do that you just need a technician who knows where to attach these things and then presumably a vet or somebody has to read out, has to understand the, the report so that I'm really going back to as a pet owner. Here, here am I as a pet owner. I bought a new puppy and I know that it's got to be um, vaccinated and I know I've got to talk about its diet and worming and all that sort of stuff. So how would I go about it? Well, I'd like to be able to, to, to go online, look at my local veterinary practice and read some stuff to start with. And then if I have questions, I'd like to be able to talk to somebody who would advise, who begin to advise me about what needed to be done. And in an an ideal world, I would want somebody to pop up here and give the vaccines or or I'm happy to go down there. If there was a problem, I'd also could see if I do a deal with the vet and the deal would be that I would pay on a monthly or quarterly basis and I would be provided with some stuff I'd want to be provided with a smart collar so that my dog would be constantly rec- I mean I don't know how these things work but I mean I know that you can record pulse and heart rate and blood oxygen and respiration and all those sort of temperature and all those sort of things if it had a lesion I'd quite like to be able to have a little gadget that I could look over my dog at the lesion so the vet could have a look at it and I'd be happy to use any other bits of gear that the vet might give me so that I, they could do, a, I don't know, blood glucose or whatever it may be. If the if if it was decided that I needed a professional to see the dog, depending on my circumstances, I'd like to be able to say, what time will you be up and have a look at Charlie? Um, and if Charlie had to go in or if Bess had to go in for some operation or procedure, I'd like to be able to for somebody to pick it up or I'd be able to take it. That is, I'd, I'd want, i i want to embrace better communication, better IT, and I clearly, I don't know all of the. I mean, I just, I was just amazed. I know now, you know, this this internet of stuff that fridges, televisions, hoovers, almost anything in the house is is now is a computer is computerised, isn't it? It's connected right. with other things, that's smart right. meters, and all Skynet that. Skynet is alive so, and well. Yeah. So that, so that's a that's a world which is it's totally beyond me as an individu- as an individual. But I'm aware that it's happening yes. and I could be excited about about its impact on my profession. So that as you say, the role of the vet is likely to be a very different specialist bit of that service and the nursing bit a specialist bit of that service. But the the technic the technical expertise, um, we've got to embrace that technically. And, but I do understand that that will raise regulatory issues for the Royal College. Uh, but they will be raised and discussed and determined, and it will happen. And as always, the regulatory bodies in this country and around the world will adapt what their, their attitude to what's happening in the marketplace. It happened with advertising, it happened with... Um, well, pat- particularly with advertising, and particularly with discussion about fees and all of those things... All of those things have happened and two or three years later, the guide to professional conduct is adapted to take account of what's happened in the marketplace already.
1: That's a, it's a fascinating overview. So let's let's change pace and I'm going to, we always wind up an interview with some of the, the more rapid fire questions. So John, over the course of your career, are there any habits or routines that you've gotten into that have helped you build success and I'll chuck in a part two of that question and that is you know no no one in any career goes through it you know n- nobody ever achieves any success without having you know, significant and meaningful failures along the way as well and so are there any habits or routines that helped you overcome those moments in your career? And probably heavy drinking isn't a good answer at this point.
0: (laughs) Not for me. Although I was, I I used to smoke a lot. I I, I used to smoke very heavily. In fact, I used to smoke, Yeah, but I'd have a, I'd have a cigarette between each consultation. I'd light a new cigarette and put it out. Anyway, that's, that's sort of history. Um, so I haven't smoked for 30, 40 years. Uh, Habits? No, I, I I can remember a long time ago thinking to myself, why is it that that sometimes I can wake up in the morning and feel absolutely on top of the world, fine, and other days I can wake up in the morning and the circumstances haven't changed, and I feel down or crotchety or or something. And I came to the conclusion it's because there's a danger that my attitude in life depends on the attitude of other people. So, I, so my, the conclusion I came to was that I would try never to let other people's attitudes influence m- me. That it was all up here. It's always all up here, and it was it was down to me. And I've and I've tried to, f- to follow that, and I've always tried to. Uh, I suppose I'm a half full, right? Half, a glass half full, man. Um, <laughs> did you did you do anything to
1: cultivate that when you? So you had the observation. And the self-awareness moment did you do anything
0: to try to cultivate positivity no I, I don't think so i suppose the the only habit that i've got into is that i if i have jobs to do and i've always got we've all got jobs to do i try and i'm working at it always to do the the tough ones first get out get that stuff out of the way so that the exciting stuff i can move on to I, I so i suppose i'm i just am i'm fortunate to be an to be an optimist and i and i can tell you how not i mean I've, I've had lots of failures i can tell you how not to franchise i can tell you how not to start a corporate <laughs> uh i can tell you that running a business successfully you have to be you have to you have to look at the big picture you have to be excited about the big picture but what makes a, suc- a business successful is the little stuff the phone has to be answered now. That letter has to be answered now. You know, the, it's the little stuff. And it's the same with, you know, I, you mentioned a lot of independent veterinary practices that aren't performing financially as well as their owners would hope and therefore don't, aren't as valuable as their owners would hope. And that the, the secret, I'm sure, is that because we're... And this is old stuff because we fundamentally run fixed cost businesses. Is to think, looking at the big stuff, think bold. But when you want to do it, think small and tiny. You know, I've, I've said to people, if you have, if your big objective is to double your profit next year, the way to do it is to do two or three little things, but to do them absolutely right. And because we're a fixed cost business, it's easy to do that. It's not difficult to make a practice earning 10% margin to a practice earning 20% margin, you don't have to spend a great deal of money, you don't have to double your fees, you don't have to employ more staff or pay them more, you just do the little things right and properly. And and if I could add one last thing, I've always believed in my consultancy role, is that whatever's going right or wrong in a practice, anywhere in the practice, it'll show up in the numbers somewhere. So I'm a sort of a numbers man, I like... When I was in my consultancy role, I always wanted to look at the numbers, not just the published financial accounts, but management accounts and some other numbers, because I'd know then if I looked at some numbers, I'd have a good feel about fundamentally, where are the problems that needed to be addressed in this practice? And
1: um, were there, that that naturally leads into a separate question, which maybe isn't a short form question, but were, were there, are there, are there... I love the eighty twenty rule and and you know you pull the the little lever and you get a big change. W- was there a common two or three things that you saw in every practice where that's
0: that's always the problem from the numbers. I think the big problem is that vet the veterinary pr- don't under, don't really understand what's really going on in their practice if you were to ask a vet how well does he know his practice they would give themselves a score of 7 or 8 or 9 out of 10 I suppose because they do know the the good clients and the bad clients, they know the strengths and weaknesses of their staff but if you ask them simple management numbers like how many phone calls did you get yesterday how many were converted to an appointment what was the occupancy of your consulting room I mean those simple sort of stuff that any manager in any sort of a business will know Vets don't know that, and they don't know it, I think, partly because now every practice is computerized, so you have masses and masses of data, but not enough information. Right. You know, it's – they have to determine what is in – what information do I really need in order to make the decisions that I can only – only I can make because I'm the owner of this practice. So – so they get their accounts from the accountant, and, and they tell me that they get management accounts from the accountant. Accountants shouldn't be creating management accounts. Accountants should advise, by all means. But it's the practice owner or manager should decide what numbers have I got to look at every Monday, once a month, once a quarter. One of the big lessons I learned when, um, when I went to the Henley School, uh, School of Management back in 19... 19- 60, whenever it was. There were about 20 of us, I seem to recall. One of our numbers was Peter Story Pugh. Now, I don't know if you know, Peter Peter Story Pugh was a very well-known member of our profession. He was president of the Royal College, president of the BVA. He was a, a prisoner in Kolditz in the war, an escape from Kolditz. He was a, a great man. He told us that he, at the time he was a lecturer in Cambridge, at the Cambridge School, and he owned a pig farm, a big Pig Enterprise, and he told us about business, uh, management by exception, and what he told us was that he had a list of KPIs, key performance indicators, about pig farms, and every Monday he would meet his manager at 8 o'clock on a Monday morning, uh, with, and he would have this report in front of him. He wasn't in the least interested in all of the things that were going right They were on track compared with budget. He was only interested in the three or four or five things that were going off-key. So he would spend an hour talking with his manager. Why is this number off-key? The the manager would tell him why he thought it was. What are we gonna do about it? Yes or no, what decision do we make? This number is going wrong. What are we gonna do about it? Why is it happening? So in an hour, this was management by exception. He would make some decisions that needed to be made, He delegates authority to his manager to get on with it and do it till the next Monday. And that's the way we ought to be running our veterinary practices, to allow clinicians, if they want to be clinicians, to practice or not practice just as they want to. But not to be tied up with the um, with the net with drawing graphs and building up numbers. They want to employ somebody within the practice to provide them with the numbers that they need to make the decisions that only they can make as practice owners.
1: Sage, sage advice. And on advice, I'm gonna I'm, I'm conscious of pushing time, and um, and it's lunch is almost upon us. Very quickly, what's the best piece of advice you ever received or gave?
0: And the worst piece of advice you ever received or gave? Best piece of advice was from my dad, who said to me once, you're a long time dead. Nobody ever gets to the end of their life and regrets. What they regret is what they didn't do. They regret. So, so the, the the lesson was, it's a short life, happy one. Grab every opportunity that's available to you. Don't don't put things on, get on with it. Worst bit of advice, worst bit of advice I think in veterinary practice was, the only way to improve your profitability is to control the costs. Uh, if by controlling the costs it means, it means cutting down on the costs, that's, that can be bad advice. Controlling the costs in the sense of understanding the costs is good advice, but it's much easier to build the top line. Brilliant. John, I could
1: talk to you for hours and hours and unfortunately for you, you don't live too far away from me, so that's not impossible. Thank you very, very much. That was a An absolute pleasure and delight. Where can people learn more from you or catch you online um, and to to find out more about what you're doing? Uh, I know that you. You publish a lot of content and we, we haven't even gotten into talking about the veterinary business video show, which is on show number 193, which has been going for like seven years and you publish, you know, monthly digests of all great stuff from around the, uh, on on the web concerning veterinary medicine and you blog and, and really you you put me to shame so where can people catch some some of this and, and where can we give john sheridan a bit of love well
0: that's kind of yeah I, I mean I, I i run a membership website it's it's uh veterinary veterinarybusiness.org veterinarybusiness all one word dot org and always happy to res, receive not not very good on phone calls because i sort of pop in and out and i'm involved with other things i I've just qualified as a first responder and I play the saxophone, so I do other things apart from that. But always happy to receive emails, john.scher at btconnect.com.
1: Perfect. John, thank you very much for being in the podcast. Great fun speaking to you.
0: Thank you very much.
1: just me again, thanks very much for listening now if you enjoyed this show can I ask you to do me three little favours, the first one is subscribe on iTunes, so you get automatic notifications whenever I produce a new episode, and while you're there don't forget to leave a five star review and some nice comments, I do read them all and they're very encouraging and the final thing is follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Dr. Dave Nichol where I post a weekly blog for anybody in a leadership position in veterinary practice Thanks for listening in, and until next time, look after those pets. Don't forget to look after yourselves, too. Till next time on Blunt Dissection, have a great month.